Have you heard of this new currency called goldbacks? Did you know that in Utah, they've made their own legal tender, and even if you are not in Utah, you can buy it? If the next recession has you wondering what to do to hedge against the banking troubles, keep listening. I'm going to talk to someone who knows about both the goldbacks and banking and why greenbacks may not be a safe store of value. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 57. Hello and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts for the links to follow the Culinary Libertarian on social media, as well as for the links to all the previous episodes. From that podcast's page, you can support the Culinary Libertarian show with the purchase of a coffee mug from my Cranky Without Coffee store, support the show with donations through Patreon, PayPal, or Bitcoin. Pick up your copy of my e-cookbook, Foolproof Muffins, Recipes That Work Every Time, by clicking on the link. Enter your email address, and the PDF will be sent to you. And for that, I'll send you an email or two a week. U.S. history fans will find courses on American history from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitutions and more with my affiliate link to McClanahan Academy. Historian Brian McClanahan has created his academy to get to the real history. McClanahan Academy is serious history for serious history students, regardless of age. Click through with my link, culinarylibertarian.com slash McClanahan Academy, to see all the courses offered, including his college-level survey course, U.S. History to 1865, and also his free class, 10 Myths of American History, culinarylibertarian.com slash McClanahan Academy. My guest today is Mark Volker, physicist and optical engineer. In addition to astronomy and physics, he is interested in the economics and history of money and banking. He earned his doctorate in optical sciences from the University of Arizona in 1993 and has done engineering and research in infrared astronomy, scanning probe microscopy, hyperspectral imaging, crypto preservation, and high pressure physics. He's served on the board of directors for the Alcor Foundation in Scottsdale, Arizona, and currently serves on the board of the United Precious Metals Association in Alpine, Utah. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hey, Dan. Good to talk to you. Today we're going to talk about money and currency and gold, but in particular, something that is interesting in Utah. But before we get into that, give us a bit of your background into how you sort of got interested in this thing we're going to talk about called goldbacks. Okay. Um, I guess a good starting point would be the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. And um, first of all, I'm old enough to have lived through the inflation of the 1970s. And that kind of sparked my interest in what is money and what happens to it when it goes bad. And I remember my grandfather giving me a silver dollar when I was about 12 years old. And so, you know, I collected coins and, and you know, like a lot of kids did. And, uh, and then when the inflation of the 70s hit, uh, that impressed upon me 
um, what can happen to a currency. Fortunately, didn't the dollar wasn't totally destroyed by that. They got got it under control, and then along came the uh, crisis of 2007 and 8. And at the time, I was on some hard times. Uh, the company I was working for uh, took it was a startup company, and we all had to take severe pay cuts. And I was living in the Bay Area, so I ended up living in a warehouse uh, without even hot water for a while. And that was during that crisis. So when that erupted, um, I still remember when Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. Um, pleaded with then Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to please, you know, give Wall Street banks about eight hundred billion dollars. And I thought at the time that Pelosi was a Democrat; she'd never allow that to happen. Well, twenty-four hours later, she caved, and the TARP bill was passed. And that was sort of a wake-up call. And I decided I really needed to understand this whole banking and monetary system because it could actually affect me in some way. Um, so I started to read about it and try to understand how it all worked. My background is science and engineering, and I like to figure things out. So uh, I started reading up on it and, and ran across a few books. One of them was The Economics of Inflation by Constantino Bresciani Taroni, which is sort of an obscure work. And another one was the not so obscure Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin and several other books. And I really wanted wanted to and did learn how the system works. And the more I read, the more worried I got. <laughs> so so here we are today, and they've managed to keep the thing going with ever larger piles of debt. But I think we're about at the end of the road here. So big things are going to happen, not very good things. One of the things I want to talk with you about, because you have knowledge on this, is the thing called a goldback. So what is a goldback, and what is it used for? So a goldback is a currency that is literally made of gold. So its physical implementation is uh, two thin sheets of polyester plastic uh, in between which is pure gold that's been vacuum deposited on the plastic. And there are uh, images embossed on the gold and Called the gold back because the paper currency that we are familiar with is colloquially called the greenback. It's printed in green ink on the back. Well, this new currency made of gold is gold on the back. So if you turn it over, you'll see nothing but gold and a faint replica of the image on the front. So they're really a gold back is really a a thin, flexible, rectangular gold coin. You can think of it that way. But people like to call them bills or notes because they're used to those rectangular pieces of paper in their wallet being called bills or notes. But they're not bills or notes. They're really, goldbacks are really coins. They're not IOUs. They're actually assets that you can give someone simply by handing it to well, it it's true. It does look and feel like a bill. It looks in in the. I've seen. I have a one dollar bill. Um, well, no, I don't. I have a one dollar goldback, um, and it, it looks like the bigger the denomination, the bigger the actual physical piece is. But it, it does. It feels and fits in a wallet like a bill fits in a wallet. So it's. But I understand. I understand your point about being a coin. You mentioned a minute ago. Um, you called it uh, not an IOU. Explain what you mean by an IOU in relationship to currency. Yeah, um, the pieces of paper in our wallet that we're all familiar with are 
properly currency and not money, although we like to call them money. They're really just currency. And they started out as claim checks for money. So decades ago, uh, when you had a paper dollar bill in your wallet, you could take that piece of paper to a bank and present it to the teller. And the teller would then take the piece of paper and give you a metallic coin in exchange. Similarly, similarly to the way you might go to a dry cleaner and hand the dry cleaner a claim check for your shirt, the dry cleaner would hand you a shirt and take the claim check. So the pieces of paper in your wallet were not money. Money was the coin that you got when you handed in the paper at the bank. So in that sense, paper money is an IOU. It's an IOU, a piece of silver or gold. That all changed finally in 1971 when then-President Nixon as they say, took us off the gold standard. Gold standard was the pieces of paper were claim checks for money. The money was gold or silver. And now we just have paper circulating and gold is all locked away in prison and it never circulates. So the pieces of paper that used to be IOUs are now IOUs that can never be cashed. They can never be turned in for what they owe us, which really is still gold or silver. Now, goldbacks are not IOUs because they are made of gold. So there's no need to go redeem them. You don't take them anywhere and turn them in for something of value. They are of value in and of themselves because they're made of gold. So there are five denominations, 1, 5, 10, 25, and 50. And as you said, the larger the denomination, the physically bigger they are because they have more gold in them. So the 10 has 10 times as much gold as the 1, and the 50 has 5 times as much gold as the 10. So the bigger the denomination, the wider, the longer and the thicker the gold back has to be. So when the the note reads the note, the coin reads one, that doesn't mean a dollar. That means whatever the corresponding dollar value is for that specific weight of gold. And by the way, what is the weight of gold in that one dollar coin? I'm gonna I'm gonna use the word dollar and we're gonna yeah, just have to deal with it. Everybody associates those numbers with dollars, at least in the United States. Of course if you're in Europe then then the currency the numbers mean euros and in Britain they mean pounds, etc. So the gold back numbers do not refer to any particular value um, in terms of dollars. It refers to the weight of gold in the gold back that you're holding in your hand. So a one gold back has one thousandth of an ounce of gold in it. And a five gold back has five thousandths of an ounce on up to through 10, 25, and 50. The 50 gold back has 50 thousandths or one twentieth of an ounce of gold in it. So Whatever the weight of gold is, plus the cost of actually fabricating the gold back, is what it's worth. Yeah, the smallest coin minted by the U.S. Mint, the smallest gold coin, is the one-tenth ounce eagle, which contains a tenth of an ounce of gold in it. And the biggest gold back denomination is the 50 which contains one twentieth of an ounce of gold. So beneath the minted US minted coins are the gold backs in terms of amount of gold, going all the way down to one thousandth of an ounce of gold in the one. 
So the utility in the Goldback is that it has a small but very precise and known amount of gold in it, and you can use it for small transactions. So if I have gold coins um, and I go in somewhere to buy something with them, even if the merchant knows what they are and knows their value, um, it, they're difficult to use because they're so very valuable. Um, try going into a bar and buying a beer with a one ounce gold coin. If the merchant, if the bartender even knew what it was, they, they would say, we can't accept that. I don't have $1,500 in change to give you. <laughs> I'm not a bank. And that's really been a problem with gold for thousands of years because it's so very, very valuable. You can't use it for small purchases. Um, and so the, the, in the old days, they came up with bimetallic or trimetallic coinage systems using silver and bronze in addition to gold for smaller economic value coins. You'd use the silver or even the bronze. Uh, thus, in the, in the U.S., you had the silver dollar and the penny um, for small transactions. And that works after a fashion, but the market may at any time change the relative values of the three metals, gold, silver, and bronze. So if you try to force them into one monetary system, it really can't be done. The market forces will at some point, say, make the silver more valuable than it was at the start relative to gold and one of the coins will disappear from circulation. The solution to that was the creation of the paper money system, where you can print pieces of paper that correspond to very small amounts of, say, gold, and in that way circulate small values. But then again, that system is prone to, to fraud on the part of the issuer of the paper currency, because they're very tempted simply to print more paper than they have gold in the vault and and so enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. Well, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but you used a term, and I want to make sure that everybody who's listening who is not an Austrian economist knows what it means. And you mentioned uh, utility. So I know what you mean, but explain what utility means in terms of the gold back. Right. So gold is extremely valuable, and therefore, to make a very small coin, you'd have to make a very small coin for everyday small purchases. So small that, say you wanted to buy a loaf of bread with gold, and that would you might take one thousandth of an ounce of gold to buy a loaf of bread. Well, one thousandth of an ounce coin is so small, it would get lost in the lint in your pocket. So it's really not practical. So the gold bag solves that problem by taking a very precise amount of gold and spreading it on or between two sheets of plastic and making it something that's physically large enough to handle. And so now we can have um, a monetary system that is suitable for both small and large purchases that only uses gold as the, as the medium of value. And this has only been possible within the last two or three years because the technology to make gold backs didn't exist three years ago. That's pretty impressive. Yep. So you, you, you've combined, you've mentioned the creature from Jekyll Island, and then you danced right up to it. So the creature from Jekyll Island is the Federal Reserve. So um, you mentioned to enrich themselves, people are going to print more money, which is backed by nothing, but they have a pocket full of you know pretty pieces of paper. So 
This is a topic on which entire careers can be made. So we're going to ask you to do the really hard thing and just how does this is really hard? How does the Fed work in in this system of just well, the the economists say inventing money or printing money out of thin air. Um, if you can, in just a short, explain why the why is the gold back necessary in terms of how the Fed operates? Okay. Well, first of all, the gold back is totally independent of the Federal Reserve System, and it's totally independent of the federal government. It is a privately issued, local, voluntary currency. So it really is has been created in response to the problems of the existing monetary system which we think has built-in instabilities in it, which will cause its demise. So given that people do need a medium of exchange and they need some way of saving their wealth over the long term, we need equality money for the people. And that's why we created the gold back. So how does the Fed work? Fed has uh, it's essentially a banking cartel. It's a that's been chartered by the federal government to issue a currency that is accepted by the federal government in payment of taxes. And the way the Fed works is it creates dollars out of nothing. Nowadays, on a computer, that decades ago, before computers, the Federal Reserve literally either wrote down book entries in, a, in an accounting book or um, print had paper currency printed up by the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. And so the Federal Reserve creates its dollar currency out of nothing. Then it exchanges that currency for treasury bonds or treasury securities. And when that exchange takes place, the federal government, not the Federal Reserve, has in possession the currency that it then uses to buy things out in the economy including paying federal employees and buying goods and services from federal contractors. That's really how the dollars come to be made and put out into the general economy. They're created from nothing by the Federal Reserve, and the, the federal government creates treasury securities, which are obligations of the Treasury Department, and the two organizations, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury, swap IOUs. The Fed holds the Treasury bonds on its balance sheet, and the federal government spends the IOUs emitted by the Fed, which are the dollars, out into the economy. We all accept those dollars as money, although they're not really money, they're actually little bits of credit, little IOUs that are created by the Fed. And obviously this process has no real limit to it. The federal government can spend as much as it can borrow, and the Federal Reserve can buy as much of the federal government's treasury securities as it wants. And so there is no limit to the amount of debt-based currency that can be created and put into the economy. And that is really the problem. There's no effective feedback loop that limits that um, process of creating currency out of debt, except the restraint of Congress in spending money. And I think we all know how restrained Congress is in spending money. 
<laughs> that would be none. None at all. For people who either don't live in a place, and I think Utah is the place, or Nevada, which takes the gold backs, or this isn't something that they're interested in, but they're thinking, okay, well, if 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 the Austrians are right, and I don't mean the residents of Austria, the von Trapp family, but the Austrian economists, that there is a recession is imminent, so many of them say, and 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 the ones and Peter Schiff, I think, is the one who called the first one, and he's been pretty vocal about the next one. Um, timing is tough, but I don't I don't think he's wrong. For people who want to find some way to hedge against what's going to probably be a bumpy ride with with the other word for for the money is for the currency is fiat currency. What suggestions can you make for them to look at for a way to, well, preserve wealth? Going into a recession, recessions are triggered when, in aggregate, there is too much debt relative to the productive capacity of the economy. And certain players get into trouble. They find that their income is not sufficient to pay their debt service costs and other bills, and they go bankrupt. And the problem with our current situation is that almost everyone in every organization, individual, public, and private, is in debt up to their eyeballs. At some point, one of these organizations is going to find, for whatever reason, it can't pay its creditors and it will go into default. That organization will go into default. And when it does, it quits paying its creditors. And its creditors then find that because they are now lacking that income, that they used to be having can't pay their creditors. And then their creditors, short of income, find they can't pay their creditors. And you have a sort of nuclear chain reaction that rips through the economy, you know, taking down one institution after another, all going bankrupt at the same time. Uh, I like to call this a systemic bankruptcy. And if that happens, ultimately everybody goes bankrupt. And that's a very difficult situation. So when this threatens to occur, the Federal Reserve rushes in, creates more of its dollars, loans them to the institution that is threatening to go bankrupt, and keeps it from going bankrupt so that it can continue to pay its creditors and halts the whole nuclear chain reaction of systemic bankruptcy. That's how they kept the system going for decades. That's what happened in 1998. That's what happened in 2008. But the problem with this is that each time this cycle of bailouts occurs, Federal Reserve finds that it has created more dollars and put them out into the economy and has in turn taken on more bad debt onto its, onto its books. And at some point, people are going to lose confidence that this can, this cycle of bailouts can continue. They'll either realize that the assets that the Fed has been buying with its newly created dollars are basically bad loans that are no good, and therefore the Fed doesn't have anything of value in its vaults, as it were. Or they'll realize that so many, so many new dollars have been put out there that the value of those dollars is probably a lot less than they think it is, and you will get a rush to spend dollars before they lose value. That is the tipping into 
know, raging inflation that we almost suffered in the 1970s. So the way to preserve your assets when this sort of event threatens is to dump your bonds that or pay you in dollars because you don't want dollars, you want to get out of dollars, to take any cash you have in the bank, pay off your specially adjustable rate debt if you can, take any additional cash and buy hard assets that have some real value and try to sell off your bonds and probably stocks also because the stock market is pretty high right now. So there's a rush into hard assets. And the premier hard asset is gold or silver. So really, you think we're going to tip into a deep recession, which would cause this necessity for more bailouts to occur. You want to bail yourself up first and divest yourself of the Federal Reserve's IOUs, which are dollars, and buy essentially gold or silver in whatever form you think is convenient for you. So that's one of those forms would be gold bags because they're very easy to spend. But if you have enough to buy one ounce gold coins, you could buy them, you could buy bars of gold. Um, Those things tend to be difficult to spend because they're so very valuable. So that's really where you you want to be, uh, is away from the overpriced bonds and paper currency and overpriced stocks and move into what used to be called just plain cash, which was gold or silver. So I want to make sure that we at least make the point that while you have done a lot of reading, you are not officially an economist. No, I'm not. Okay. I do not have a degree in economics. I do have a PhD in optical physics. Well, that's not economics. Well, that doesn't mean that you're just in case people are saying, "Well, what's the what's the you know what's the credibility here?" You're you've read a lot, um, so I, I don't. I just want to make sure that we at least make that caveat for the people who find that important. Uh, there are plenty sure. of uh, plenty of professional econom- economists who missed 2008 by a long shot. So the credential of a piece of paper from a school in economics doesn't necessarily, well, we're going to be punny, buy you a credential. So lots of people missed it. So I just want, but I think your I think your reading is sound, and I think your information is good. So I want to just. To give that cushion, because you know people want, want to, they need to be right. informed, and they think that that's fair for people who want that. Uh, Jeffrey Herbner was a guest on this show, who is a for real economist, uh, and that I will put a link to his uh, interview on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com/slash fifty-seven. So. We're not taking away from Jeff's contribution. We're adding to it by having a bigger base of information. Mark, before you talk about the banking system, let me tell the folks about a magazine I've become quite impressed with, which is Bastion Magazine. Bastion just changed their name from Austro-Libertarian, but the writers are the same great writers, and the topics are still well-researched and well-written. The fall 2019 issue is scheduled for mid-November, which gives you plenty of time to read the summer issue for which previous podcast guest Chris Calton wrote. Use my affiliate link culinarylibertarian.com slash magazine to see the subscription options. You can subscribe yearly or per issue, and the magazine is both digital and paper. Check out Bastion Magazine for excellent writing, timely content, and help support a great new business. Culinarylibertarian.com slash magazine. Now, let's get back to our talk with Mark. Sure. And I would encourage everybody out there to educate themselves about the monetary system 
banking. I know you're probably not interested in it. I really wasn't interested in it before the 2008 crisis. I just treated the banking system like a utility. You know, if you go into the room and you flip on the switch and the lights come on, you don't really care about how that whole thing works. But if you flip the switch and the lights don't come on, then you suddenly get very interested in what's wrong and you try to figure it out. And to do that, you have to know something about how the, how the power system works, how electricity makes that light go on. So back in 2008, when the financial crisis really got going, um, I decided that this banking system thing was looked like it was malfunctioning and I'd better learn about how it works so that if it does fail, you know, I it would probably affect me and I better know what to do. So I just started educating myself about money and banking and economics. And anybody can do that. You can go. There's plenty of information out there nowadays, especially with the Internet. You can read up on how the Federal Reserve works, what money is, what currency is, the difference between money and credit. You know, you, it's not something that is beyond the understanding of the average person, but you do have to want to know about it and teach yourself. And there's one real good group of videos that's put out by a man named Michael Maloney. Um, he's created a set of videos called The Hidden Secrets of Money. They're all on YouTube. You can just search for Michael Maloney money, and I'm sure you'll run into them. And each of these about a dozen half-hour-long videos takes you through what money is, how it became to be, the history of money, how the Federal Reserve works in, in a very, very clear fashion. When you're done spending five or six hours watching those videos, you'll know more about money, banking, and economics Probably than your local banker does. Yeah, I was going to say that. Since he just, it's his job simply to run the local bank branch, you know, and make sure that's working. And he doesn't think about the machinery behind it. So um, I would recommend Maloney's uh, video series, Michael Maloney's video series, The Hidden Secrets of Money. I would recommend um, uh, Griffin's uh, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which I think is. Last I saw was in its fifth printing, which gives, in an entertaining fashion, the history of the creation of the Federal Reserve System and how it works. Um, I would try to look into the Austrian School of Economics, which I think is the one that has the best uh, view of how economics really works. And um, and you and if you're interested in goldbacks. There are two organizations. There is goldback.com, which is the company that issues goldbacks and is putting them into circulation. Goldback does not physically create the goldback currency. That's done by another company um, called Valorum, which is headquartered in Portland, Oregon. Um, But Goldback is the one that's distributing and is having the goldbacks made under license with Valorum. And then there's another organization called the United Precious Metals Association in Alpine, Utah. That is, that is a nonprofit member association that acts like a bank. So you can, anybody can go to upma.org online and create an account for free and then put your paper currency into that account and the UPMA will convert that paper currency into either gold eagles or silver eagles or gold backs and then vault them for you. And if you want, you can ask UPMA to mail you your gold or silver or they can store it for you in their vault in Alpine. And so, upma.org and goldback.com specifically for goldbacks and anybody can do that any you don't have to be a resident of utah 
You don't even have to be an American. We've even got foreigners that are opening up accounts at UPMA and sending their foreign currency to UPMA. But UPMA only accepts, at this time, uh, Federal Reserve note paper currency. We don't accept euros or um, British pounds or any of that. So you would, if you're not in the United States and you want to buy gold backs or gold or silver eagle coins through UPMA, you need to have your bank convert your local currency into U.S. dollars and then wire those U.S. dollars to UPMA. And then UPMA will buy the form of gold or silver that you want and vault it for you. And if you ask for it, ship it to you. And that way you can begin to at least save some of your hard-earned wealth outside this crazy, unstable fiat currency banking system that we all suffer. What is your relationship with the gold pack? How is I mean, how did you come to know about this? About four years ago, so I had been sensitized to these problems. In 2008, 2007, when the, when the banking crisis erupted. And about four years ago, I came across a story on a alternative news service called Zero Hedge, zerohedge.com. And the story said that there was now in Utah a bank that allowed people to save and transact in gold and silver and you know i was sort of surprised i didn't know there was such an organization i always thought that if you wanted to save gold and silver you had to sort of buy them buy your gold or silver and have it shipped to you and you go out somewhere and bury it in the ground or something and so this was of interest to me and i looked into upma and in alpine and it was just getting going back and I opened an account and, you know, tried to squirrel away some funds. And as the as UPMA grew, eventually they asked me, would you like to serve on our board of directors? And I said, okay, I will. So um, I, I'm on the board of UPMA, the nonprofit. And just... About two years ago, I was hosting a meeting at my house here in Las Vegas among people that are interested in gold and silver. And um, some of the people were, we were playing cards, we were playing blackjack. And the deck I was using happened to be, um, have gold embossed foil on the back. And um, one of the people playing there that told me that sparked his idea for making a currency out of gold. And he had just seen and heard of recently the technology to make gold backs. And so he went off and founded Goldback Incorporated and has created this currency goldback and we're now introducing it to Utah, the United States and whoever else you know would like would like to save it and use it. That's sort of the genesis of how I got involved um, just as an interested civilian who is concerned about the problems that our monetary system seems perpetually have and uh, I think really if you work for a living as most of us do you provide real value to people in your job whether it's making something selling something whatever you do you're providing real value and I personally think you should receive in turn something of real value not just little bits of debt issued by the central bank. It's only fair 
that if you have to work to provide the things other people need in their lives, that you should return, in turn, get something of value for that work. That's what I like about the gold bag. I'm going to take a small twist here, and since this is the Culinary Libertarian Show, uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions that have nothing to do with gold or banking, um, just because they're kind of fun. All right. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, which one do you enjoy the most? Oh, definitely not sweet. I would say probably salty. What's your favorite food? Oh, I really like bacon. <laughs> <laughs> What's your least favorite food? Oh, some of these hard candies that I used to eat as a kid, like sugar, you know, suckers or something like that. Uh, I really don't like things that are just plain sweet. What gets you excited? The prospect of, this is a completely different subject from money and banking, the prospect of the creation of the ability to rejuvenate human beings, to make old people young again, which is really becoming a real thing right now over the last few years. I know some of the people who are doing the work that's creating the ability to rejuvenate human beings. What turned you off? Really, people who think they have the right to boss other people. <laughs> so politicians you mean <laughs> most of them that's right yes yes especially the current crop seems to be especially obnoxious <laughs> and no relief in sight until november next year that's right what sound do you love what sound yes in terms of music i really like Sort of dramatic music. Uh, I like to name one composer, Hans Zimmer. He, he's done a lot of the soundtracks that I find really beautiful. Um, I also love the sound of rain on a rooftop in the middle of the night. What sound do you hate? I would say if you take your fingernails and scrape them across a chalkboard, that pretty much turns my hair on end, so okay, I really hate that sound. <laughs> What's your favorite food indulgence? Oh, okay. I do like a couple sweet things. One of them is Baskin Robbins pistachio almond ice cream with dark chocolate syrup on it. That's a good combination. Yeah. And ice cream is, is is a worthy indulgence all the time, so much so that it wouldn't even be That's an right. indulgence. That's one thing that we have in our modern era that the ancients probably never had the privilege of tasting is ice cream. And, oh, in terms of culinary oddities, I am making some garum which is the, the sauce that the Romans loved 2,000 years ago. And I'm brewing some up in my backyard in some five-gallon buckets. And how is that coming along? Uh, I haven't. I've tasted it off and on a little bit. And the way you make garum is you take fresh fish, and you kind of chop it up, and you um, salt it down with about equal weights of salt and fish, and you set it out in the sun for months, and it does not rot. Um, it just turns into this sort of this fish sauce, and I've had little tastes of it, and before it's done, I'm, I'm pretty soon going to have to um, filter it, strain it through, and the, it, the end product is a clear liquid. So when, I'm, when I've got that all filtered out. Um, we'll see what it tastes like. I, 
I've heard people really rave about it, and, and it was the favorite condiment of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, so must, there must be some good taste associated with it. If you know, how does it vary from a properly made Thai fish sauce? Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. Because I haven't tasted garum yet, really. So I'd have to, you know, get a bottle of Thai fish sauce and then a bottle of my garum when it's all done and just compare them right next to each other. Well, I do know that the quality levels of fish sauce vary dramatically. And some of them are worth avoiding. Some of them are worth getting. And uh, I don't, it's been years since I've purchased them. And so without knowing what you have in your store, I would check with the people who know, but I would be interested to find out how those two compare to each other. Well, all I can say is that you can buy garum. They, some places in Europe sell it and it goes for something like 25 euros for a little five ounce bottle of the stuff. So, um, it must taste pretty good to have people pay that kind of money for a condiment. How, how much is that in gold back? That would be about 10 gold backs. All right. Yeah. Well, you might be on a little empire over there. Oh, uh, very good. Yes. Right. Now, <laughs> I live in Vegas, so we're, we're about five hours, freeway hours from the ocean. So whatever fish I get has to be trucked in. Um, you know, if you were living on the coast, you can see how you could have garum factories going and uh, near where the, the fishermen land their boats. Yeah, Las Vegas is not the first place I think of when I mentioned fresh fish. Right, that's right. Yeah. And if I remember, if I remember correctly, you also uh, have built a pizza oven. Um, I actually did build one. It's not here. It's up in Utah, and so I really like good pizza, yeah, yeah. Mm. especially one, um, ones that don't have a whole lot of different, like a lot of different things on it, you know, and I, I, and I am sorry for those who like it, but I do not like pineapple on my pizza. <laughs> <laughs> well... That's right. We talked to Peter Reinhardt about that. It turns out to be a Canadian invention. Okay. All right. <laughs> so who knew? Yeah. All right. Well, I, the next question you answered before you were asked, which was some reading recommendations, and you did give me a few, uh, which I will include the creature from Jekyll Island at, on the show notes page. Right. And uh, if I can find it, I'll put a link also to the Maloney YouTube channel. Yeah, Michael Maloney is Hidden Secrets of Money videos. Okay. Really well done. Uh, see what I can find and put that out there because that I haven't seen those and that sounds interesting. Yeah, they're they're an easy, so. fun watch, and you learn a lot while you're watching. Well, it, you know it's. It is probably true that for most people who hear, <laughs> go read a book about the banking system, oh, can't I just go look the road instead, please? Because <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't sound exciting. It really doesn't. Well, but they don't, it is. They don't want it to sound exciting. They don't want you really to look into this too much. So they make it dull and boring, really. Well, it yeah. So I, a book and an author we both know was Tom Woods' uh, Meltdown, which I think is still available. And I, if it is, I'll put a link also okay, on the show notes page because Meltdown is a very thorough explanation of what happened in 08. And while there's a lot of players and a lot of things happening, the explanation of it the timeline as it's going is really illuminating. And for the listener who says, well, what do I care about that? Well, knowing, recognizing when it's happening again and knowing what to do before it gets that bad is really the reason for being informed about this. And that's why, you know, Mark, you and I are talking is to, it's, it's probably, if it doesn't, you know, it may not be, this year, next year, or the year after that. But if you look at the history of recessions, 
One thing we can say with certainty is it will happen. We don't know when, but the if isn't in question. So that's right. It's being a, informed is is the best bet you've got. It, it's a it's an if not it's a when not if situation. Right. right. And really, and, what you're trying to do is pick out a market top. In this case, the top is in the value of the dollar and its derivative fiat currencies around the world and in the bonds that are denominated in those fiat currencies. Those have been going up in value. That is, interest rates have been falling now for something like 35 years. Think of a 35-year-long bull market. That's really what we've been seeing here in bonds and in credit instruments, which is what fiat currencies are. They are derivatives of, of credit instruments. And so when we've reached the end of that bull market in credit and its derivatives, and people find that they can no longer service this debt, that's the top, but you can't know when that is. It's like trying to call out exactly when an avalanche is going to fall. You can look up on the mountain. And if you're, you know, experienced in seeing avalanche situations, you can go, yeah, there's there's an avalanche waiting to happen there, and it's going to happen. But you don't know what's going to set it off or when. So you just have to not be down in the village when it comes down on you. <laughs> All right. So that's really the situation we're in here, and I hope we're not going to have it happen too soon. Because quite frankly, there aren't that many gold backs out there in circulation yet. And I don't think there are very many Americans and others who have really looked at this situation and decided they want to save some gold and silver for themselves and prepare for it. So it's better if the education proceeds so that more people can be prepared before it actually happens. Is, is there a limit to the number or denomination quantity of gold banks? No, we just are producing them as fast as we can. And, um, you know, we're, that's one of the reasons we're concentrating mainly in Utah because it's one state of a few million people. And we're limited in our resources. The factory that makes gold bags, you know, can only churn out so many so fast. So we're in sort of a race, really, a race to educate people about the nature of this problem and a race to produce the means of, of blunting the crisis when it finally hits. It's, it's maybe someone who's lived in, Florida or, or Louisiana understands that there's going to be a hurricane that hits at some point. So you don't want to be in that line trying to buy the last sheet of plywood okay, when the hurricane is approaching. <laughs> you, you want to be more prepared. And in the context of a banking and currency crisis, the way you get prepared is you take your wealth outside of the system in the form of gold and silver another hard asset. Well, that's good advice. Thanks. Well, Mark, thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate that. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on here. And I do enjoy listening to the Culinary Libertarian. Well, I appreciate that. I enjoy doing it. So it works out well. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> it's a good voluntary trade. Yep. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll have the links on the show notes page culinarylibertarian.com slash 57 to Michael Maloney's Hidden Secrets of Money as well as to the books we talked about. From the show notes pages, near the top are social media buttons which you can click to share that episode to your Facebook, Twitter, or Pinterest pages. That's a great way to help share the show with your friends and to grow our audience. If you like books but are pressed for time to sit and read, let Audible help. Audible offers 30-day free trials on your audiobook 
And if you don't care for the service, cancel before 30 days and owe nothing. And you get to keep the audiobook. Audible has over 470,000 audio titles. Download now and start listening. They also offer a hassle-free exchange. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com audible to learn more and to start your free trial. The Tom Woods book, Meltdown, as well as Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, are in the Audible Library. culinarylibertarian.com audible. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.